Welcome to the Fixing Healthcare podcast series, Breaking the Rules. I am one of your hosts, Jeremy Core. I'm also host of the Popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO at Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling books, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong, and How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. All profits go to Doctors Without Borders. If you want information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can visit his website, robertperlmd.com. Our guest today is New York Times bestselling author and nationally renowned futurist, Ian Morrison. Welcome, Ian. It's great to have you on season eight of Fixing Healthcare. Well, Robbie, an honor to be back. Thanks for having me. Ian, as you know, this season is focused on leadership. And you've had the opportunity to observe hundreds of healthcare leaders across your glorious career, both good and bad leaders. So let's begin with the best ones you've seen. In your opinion, what has made them so successful? Well, Robbie, I, it's such a good question. And, um, you know, I, I'm reminded of having worked a couple of times with Jim Collins you know, the the good to great guy um, who wrote a, a, a number of wonderful books about successful companies. And I think having talked to him about it, um, he was kind of originally of the opinion that leadership, he didn't want to find that leadership mattered. Let me put it that way. He thought that, you know, a, a particular strategy or some analytics uh, of, of uh, success were more important. And he had to concede, I think, after a, a, a lengthy career and rigorous investigation that leadership doesn't indeed matter. And, um, you know, I learned a lot from him uh, and his writing about that. And I would just sort of summarize what what I would take as, as kind of the hallmarks of leader uh, who are successful. One is this notion of authenticity and connection to uh, the enterprise. And, and that's both in terms of humility about, it's not about them, it's about the organization um, and authenticity on the other hand. Um, and then, you know, I think in terms of behaviors, what, what Collins and others have sort of taught me that uh, you've really got to confront the brutal facts, you know, get a, get a real uh, clear and honest uh, perspective on the situation you face and you know his his notion of getting the right people on the bus you know assembling the right team uh really is incredibly important and the final point i'd make that i drew from collins and i i think is absolutely right is not to get too distracted by shiny objects and really focus on that intersection that he describes between you know, what are you world-class at? Uh, what are you passionate about? And most importantly, what, you know, what, what can you make money at? What kind of economic engine, even if you're a nonprofit, can you build uh, to, to sustain that enterprise? So I think, you know, Jim Collins' work and, and others, uh, you know, classic uh, scholars of leadership sort of inform my opinion, but, but it was reinforced, as you say, by 
you know, 40 years of experience working with, with leaders like yourself. As you well know, a lot of the companies that Jim highlighted in the book, Good to Great, that had been successful for a while, if you look back a decade later, many of them have dropped out of that premier status. Uh, I've not seen a follow-up from him as to how much shift and change in leadership was responsible, but you certainly see that in other companies. You know, we saw in Apple with Steve Jobs leaving, the company having problems, is coming back and doing better. Um, you see, you've seen it at Intel, you've seen it at Hewlett-Packard. Um, is, is this a sense that you have that finding the subsequent leader is more difficult than people imagine? I think that's a really good insight. And, and you know, funnily enough, I was working through the 90s uh, when I was running the Institute for the Future very closely with the the ingoing and, uh, well, the outgoing and incoming CEOs of uh, Pitney Bowes, the, the mail meter company. And actually, it was my biggest project outside of healthcare in my career where we built, with the help of Pitney Bowes, a consortium of uh, all the postal services of scale around the world um, to really answer the question about what was going to be the future of mail in a digital era. Um, and, and that was an ongoing project for several years. So I worked very closely with uh, George Harvey, who was the outgoing CEO, and Mike Critelli, who came in uh, in the early 90s. And I would say that both of those leaders had a lot of the characteristics of, uh, you know, Jim Collins' uh, good to great leaders. You know, they were level five leaders. It was it was very they they loved the company. They understood the business. They understood the business model, and I think they faltered after Mike Critelli left a little bit uh, because they didn't necessarily keep uh, that kind of. Um, commitment to the, the 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 Collins principles. But I think you're raising a good point. It's very difficult to sustain generations of leaders, you know, two, three, four, you know, you can do a succession, but can you really do, uh, you know, permanent, uh, even GE, who probably did the best job of any company in grooming a next generation of CEOs, General Electric, you know, through their their training programs and their their kind of model of of cross training in different businesses, uh, you know that company faltered uh, uh, even uh, having had great success uh, under some of the previous leaders. It really almost came crashing down to the ground entirely. So you're absolutely right that shift in leadership certainly had a major impact on both the strategy and the ability to execute it. So let's keep talking about some of the. Failures. You mentioned one thing, which is not to be able to uh, take a brutally honest view of where you are and where your competition might be. Are there other personal failures that you've seen in leaders who've not done the job that they should have done? Well, I mean, I I think perhaps where you see um, the most common kind of failure in leadership is kind of betting the farm. Uh, prematurely, I, I mean, it's 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 the book I wrote 25 years ago, the second curve about, you know, the the first curve is the old business, the second curve is the new business. Getting the timing right on those two is an extraordinarily difficult. And um, you, you know, on the one hand, 
you've got to be mindful of preserving the engine that got you to the party, you know, the, the first curve core business. And on the other, you can get sideswiped. And that was the classic Pitney Bowes example that they didn't want to prematurely walk away from the mail system. And they were right in that because it was 15 years before uh, first class mail actually went, uh, you know, south in terms of growth for a bunch of kind of black swan reasons that were kind of unrelated to their core business. But but my point is that that where you see failure sometime is being too enamored with the core business uh, or conversely too enamored with the shiny object uh, that is the new business. And, and you might argue that Zuckerberg has kind of done that with the metaverse, you know, betting all in on the metaverse a little prematurely in terms of, of business model. Um, and, and so I think both of those errors, those, you know, underestimating the resilience of the core model and overestimating the, the novelty and, and potential of the new model, that, that sense of timing and strategic timing can often undo leaders uh, who, who don't have uh, a clear eye view. That's why I'm a huge fan of kind of building very sophisticated tracking models and data sources to, to at least let you know which curve you're on, right? Because part of the problem is uh, you can confuse yourself if you're just digesting your own press releases. Um, you really need to look at facts on the ground in terms of adoption rates and so forth. I guess being a futurist like yourself, it's a little bit like Groundhog Day. The future is always ahead of you. No matter how much time has passed, no matter how hard, how fast you run, there's still this future out there. So let me ask you, how will healthcare leadership need to be different in this new future than it's been at present or the past? Yeah, I think that's that's a key question. And, um, you know, one of the the sort of obsessions of my career is what causes things to change? What are the kind of the, the forcing functions that would cause the system to transform or, or to challenge leaders in different ways? And, and let me just give you a few, and I, and you've been very eloquent, Robbie, in all your various forms of publication and communication and, and all of these, but let me rattle off a, a, a few and we could perhaps riff on, on which are the most important kind of levers on change going forward. One is, I, I think that we're underestimating is just the sheer scale of Medicaid. Um, you know, President Biden did a nice job of sort of saying, we're not gonna touch Medicare. Uh, but he didn't say anything about Medicaid. And I think the fact that we have 90 million Americans on Medicaid, even though that number may drop with the, the public health uh, emergency being expiring. So I, I worry a bit about that as a driver and what that what the consequences are for the health system. Um, perhaps related is the relentless push by CMS towards value but I have to say the facts on the ground in terms of the delivery side, I don't see as much capitation or at-risk provider as, as I had hoped to have by this stage in the game. Um, the one that you and I have talked about before is whether employers finally wake up um, to the fact that they're, and they are waking up, I think, in terms of uh, they're having to uh, pay the bill for the health system in terms of paying over the odds for for what they uh, uh, purchase 
Um, you know, I'm talking here about 300% of Medicare, you know, in terms of hospital prices. And then one that you've spent a lot of time talking and writing about um, is will the disruptors succeed? And I think, you know, while we're seeing some failures of some of the startup primary care activity, you know, even in the headlines of the last week or two, uh, you're seeing very big bets being made by big retail, um, you know, our friends at Walgreens and Walmart and CVS and so forth. Um, and, you know, I think they potentially will force change on leaders. And one that you've spent a lot of time and I think have nailed it in terms of consequence is that technology may call a bluff on some of our assumptions about the future. I'm I'm not a technological determinism. I don't think technology causes things. I think technology is an amplifier of trends. But I think this, as you've written about, you know, uh, artificial intelligence, per, particularly, you know, son of chat GPT and what, what may follow, will have huge implications for medicine and for, for healthcare delivery. And also clinical technologies, which I'm certainly not qualified to uh, you know, comment on really, but but you know, a million articles a year in science and medicine are uh, you know published every year uh, that have relevance to clinical care, and I think we're going to see innovation. And finally, I'd point to, and I think this is going to be one of the forcing functions, the top-down pressure that we're going to see as more states do what California has done and Massachusetts, and I believe Oregon and a few others which is to kind of start the, in the case of California, the Office of Healthcare Affordability, um, you know, Governor Newsom's uh, program, uh, which actually is a law. It's not just a, a you know, a, a kind of a commission or a, or a, a foundation or a fact-finding deal. It actually has some teeth. It might take till 2028 before it has implications, but I think that will put some top-down pressure on the health system from a total expenditure point of view, and maybe causes to fundamentally reappraise what is the existing financial hydraulics of healthcare, this issue of cross-subsidy from commercial to pay for the perceived underfunding of, of public programs. Well, that, that's maybe rambling a bit, but I, I, I look at those forcing functions as the things to track to help you understand what the landscape for leaders might look like uh, going forward over the next decade. No, I, I love it. And I think you're absolutely right that these are all factors. I think the question is really going to be, are they symptoms or are they the drivers? And within all of that, the real question is going to be, is this a moment of synchronicity? So you've talked about several of these issues that are all coming together at the same time. You know, I think about this as, you know, I've written about the conglomerate of monopolies the hospital industry, the private equity coming in for doctors' practices, the drug industry. It's almost like the immovable object. And then, as you said, we have the retail giants, the CVS, the Walmarts, the Amazons. In some ways, these are unstoppable forces. They have a lot of money, a lot of drive, already a lot of territory covered. And then you introduce a chat GPT, which is not just a next generation of AI or a change in an algorithm, it shifts completely the locus of control. If you're looking at an algorithm or one of the traditional AI programs, 
it is driven by a human being who writes code or uses an AI deep learning methodology to be able to figure out how better to diagnose mammograms or how better to take care of diabetes. It's very specific. And as with a medication, the patient is the recipient of it, which is why the FDA can regulate it. ChatGPT or generative AI in general doesn't have to be open AI's version. Is it like that? To me, it's like the telephone. I can regulate how much electromagnetic energy comes out of your telephone. I can regulate things about the fire danger related to the telephone, but I can't regulate what you do with it. You can give really dumb advice to your friends and family. You can do almost anything you want. And I can't change that except by ripping all the telephones out. That's what to me is so different about ChatGPT and generative AI in general, not the current generation, it's a toy, but at the rate that it's moving forward, we're gonna see a doubling of power every four to six months. That means that in five years, it'll be 30 times more powerful. We're going from a bicycle to a car to a jet plane in five years. Imagine what that would do to society relative to transportation. And I think this, this coming together the synchronicity uh, of, of these three forces, somewhat unrelated to each other, all coming at the same moment. I think you're exactly right. It's going to change delivery system. You know, it doesn't matter whether you pay with 20s, 50s, or $100 your hospital bill. It's still exorbitant and too high. It doesn't even matter whether it's paid by you or the government. It matters to you. It might matter to the government too. But it doesn't change the fundamental problem that we have a healthcare system that is inefficient. Now, if it was totally efficient, we would have to figure out how do we ration it? Because that's all you can do. But really the next thing is how do you pull out those inefficiencies? And I think you've examined, I say the symptoms, 90 million people on Medicaid. You know, I asked, I asked people about it. So, you know, how, what percent of the nation is on Medicaid? They said 10 million, 20 million. It's one in three insured Americans. That says a huge amount. You know, as you said, commercial Medicare is paying a third. Sorry, commercial is paying three times what Medicare is paying. That can't last. These are these are changes that have to shift. And the only place I would disagree with you, Ian, I don't think the government is really leading the process of pay for value. MIPS and MACRA, those are not real changes. They're just little toes in the water. You really want to change things completely. You got to rip apart a fee-for-service system, replace it with capitation. You got to create groups, not individuals. You have to be able to figure out who's doing things well and move the business to them. That's what every other industry does, with the exception, by the way, of education. But that's what every other industry does. And healthcare, I think, hasn't yet done it. Yeah, no, I, look, and on that final point, and all of those points, Robbie, I completely agree. I mean, my bemoaning, I, I, I point to CMS in the sense that they are clearly, regardless of who's running the country, Republican or Democrat, uh, are sending the right signals about it, you know, in terms of saying we believe in value. But I completely agree with you. I mean, I, I was at a retreat with the hospital system, and I asked the, health, the CEO what proportion of his patient flow was capitated, and the answer is zero. Um, 
you know, and and I actually have been very disappointed that we are coming. You know, you and I share the the vision of of capitation as as a an alignment of incentives with uh, appropriately integrated providers uh, who are capable of absorbing that. And you know, with the exception of of you know Kaiser and your former organization, um, you know, I, I've I've been disappointed that we haven't seen a greater penetration. Now there are there are some promising you know, innovators in that space, but but getting us uh, over the line with regard to all of uh, or, or a majority of revenues flowing in that way uh, directly to providers, not just to plans. Uh, and, th and that's where I think the other piece here is that I'll, what I hear anecdotally is that a lot of the, you know, the plans are ex obviously getting the equivalent of capitation. They're getting paid and and in our both our public program, particularly in our public programs, Medicare, Medicaid, um, but it's it's they're sort of hoarding risk, and I think using the tools they have internally to manage through denials and claims and more conventional uh, inter you know fee for service type managed fee for service type models, uh, rather than truly delegating down uh, to at-risk providers so those at-risk providers can really innovate in the way they deliver care. So I think that's one of the barriers. And and But I think we're in agreement as to directionally what ought to happen. Uh, I'm just a bit disappointed at, at the speed. But let me just pick up two on your synchronicity point, because I think that that's very wise. And, and you know, often, you know, when, when I was writing the second curve, you'd think, I would I would have focused more on the tipping point and Malcolm Gladwell's book came out and I know you've worked closely with Malcolm. I mean, which was a genius set of observations about what causes things to go exponential. Um, and I think we're at that kind of exponential moment here where a number of these factors come together. I think that's a very important insight you've had. So Robbie and I have been co-hosting this show since 2019 and you were one of the first guests on our show. You know, obviously, the overarching theme of our show is fixing healthcare and driving change in the industry. One thing this podcast has shown is how many people there are out there with brilliant ideas on how to fix healthcare and are actively trying to improve American healthcare. Uh, with so many brilliant thought leaders and change agents out there trying to make a difference, why do you think so little has changed or improved in healthcare since your first appearance on this show? Yeah, well, no, it's, it's a really good question. I asked myself that question, you know, having been at this for 40 years you know i've been i've got i've got slides that are older than most of my clients um you, you know and and it really speaks to the well let me put it this way jeremy i i think this is an industry with tremendous inertia and there is a certain amount of legitimacy to that inertia given that unlike other places where you can give it the college try and if it doesn't work out it, no harm no foul to mix metaphors of sports, but but in healthcare, when you're actually dealing with life and death, uh, literally, uh, and where the consequences of a bad experiment are lethal, then I, I think that puts an appropriate amount of caution on experimentation and and change. Uh, but that should not excuse us from making transformation that matters. Uh, provided that we're judicious in the application of technology and always have as kind of a North Star, do the right thing for the patient that is 
both science-based and, and evidence-based. Um, but I do think it's an industry that has had a tremendous amount of inertia, uh, both policy inertia and, and operational inertia. Uh, and, and that's, you know, I've spent probably half of my career encouraging people to change and then the other half dragging them back from doing something really stupid. Um, and, and uh, you know, I, it, compared to other industries, it just doesn't seem to move as fast. And I think that's got to be frustrating, uh, you know, for people who are consumers of the health system on the one hand, and uh, for those of us who are uh, kind of see ourselves as change agents on the other it doesn't it doesn't mean we give up but but i think you need to understand i've written about this the the kind of time clock of medicine and healthcare is somewhat different than the time clock say of uh you know the fashion industry or or you know music or technology uh you know outside of the healthcare realm you know obviously ian we love having you on the show and you'll definitely be coming back on uh let's say in 5 years you come back on the show what do you hope will be different about american healthcare and what do you realistically think will have changed for the better and potentially worse in that time frame? Well, look, to put a positive spin on it, I'm hopeful that, you know, if you have me back in five years, um, that we will have finally gotten uh, all of the the um, uh, states uh, over the line with regard to Medicaid expansion. And it's not that Medicaid is the be all and end all, but um, the Affordable Care Act, uh, you know, we, one thing we should celebrate is that as of today, before these redeterminations kick in, we have the lowest uninsured rate in American history. Uh, and that's a legacy of both uh, the Affordable Care Act and these uh, provisions that were made through the public health emergency. So um, I think I'm hopeful five years from now that we will get forever closer to at least some semblance of universal coverage for the country. Um the, the other thing I'm hopeful for is that we do finally get some traction on the transformation that Robbie uh, and I talked about of, of payment mechanisms that, that really encourage, uh, you know, the formation of, of uh, providers who are facing an incentive to manage total cost of care. Um, and I think there are signals of that in, in these, uh, policy changes we talked about and in in the marketplace with regard to you know employers who are, are at their if not the end of their tether uh, getting down the tether of uh, paying uh, over the odds so I'm hopeful on both those fronts both on coverage and and kind of the affordability and and management of total costs that we that we see some progress and the other thing I think just to echo back what what Robbie pointed to earlier is just the rate of change of power in emerging technologies like uh, artificial intelligence. Five years from now, uh, as Robbie uh, did the math, is it, we're going to be dealing with incredibly powerful tools. Um, and how I hope that we will be celebrating uh, some of the great success stories of how those tools have been applied successfully to make lives uh better for clinicians on the one hand and certainly safer and better for patients on the other. And I think if we can do that, then we will have succeeded in managing through uh, both a pandemic and its aftermath with, with uh, uh, some success. So let me ask you, uh, Ian, 
if you believe that this, and I'll use the phrase radical change, you can use disruptive change, needs to happen, how can we develop the leaders of tomorrow? Well, I think there's a number of different hallmarks, I think, of the leaders going forward. I think one of them is to make sure that we are building a cadre of diverse leaders who have different perspectives and backgrounds and stories that they bring to their organizations. You know, one of the things that is clear in the long run demographically is that the kind of quintessential leader as white male is not going to fit with the population that we're serving or the uh, you, you know, the workforce that, that we're going to be managing. So um, I think having a diverse set of leaders uh, being trained and, and exposed to um, opportunities in leadership is going to be vitally important. I think the leaders of the future are going to have to be adept at understanding just the cadence of these technological changes you describe. Um you don't necessarily have to be a coder, but I think you need to uh, have a deep appreciation of the kind of penetration and, and power that these emerging technologies can have. And so, you know, leaders of the future, I think, are going to have to be adept in that regard. And I think, quite honestly, it will help. Uh, you know, you've written a lot about having physician-led organizations. I think uh, I'm not quite at the point where you say you have to be uh, a physician to run a large health system going forward, but it sure helps. And if you can't uh, find leaders who uh, have medical backgrounds and those other attributes, you know, the use of kind of dyad models, I think that Mayo has done over the years and others uh, seems to work reasonably well. Um, but you've got to build that, you've got to build in that clinical mindset um, again, with with an ability to synthesize the emerging landscape of clinical opportunities and changes, and and help guide your organization to what matters and and what should be focused on. So, I mean, those are just some of the thoughts in terms of attributes for the future. The other, um, I think, is a deep appreciation for uh, operational excellence and. Um, in the final analysis, where a lot of organizations fail is they have good PowerPoint and well-intentioned kind of directionality about the change and, and fall down on uh, leading operational excellence. And I, I still maintain, even though I've spent my entire career as a strategy guy, if, if, uh, if you have a choice between strategy and execution, take execution every day of the week concur completely you know it's the i call it the knowing doing gap i'm interested in something you talked about a couple of minutes ago was uh the head of open ai altman he's not yeah. a programmer i assumed he was i just read a, a description about his life in new york times last week he's not he's someone who's able to do what you described to see a problem to see an opportunity and then to figure out how to close that gap and make it happen. I thought that was really uh, interesting. And I, I assumed you'd be like a Sergey Brin or all the other folks who were the technological geniuses who either started or led companies. And uh, he's not, he's just a genius.
genius about how you solve problems. And right now he's figured out how to solve some pretty big ones for us. Indeed. You work with both medical group leaders and hospital leaders. How are they similar and how are they different? Um, well, let me just say, I, I think leading other physicians, as, as you've done in your career, is probably the hardest job I can ever imagine. I mean, I think it, you know, everyone uses metaphors like herding cats. But, you know, I spent seven years in an academic medical center trotting at the heels of a department chair uh, as, as his research flunky uh, while I was working on my doctorate. Um, and I have to, you know, I learned a huge amount from Dr. David Hardwick, who passed away a few years ago, but um, he he taught me a lot about the medical mind. And and his great kind of one-liner was, well, we take the smartest people in their college class and then we, you know, disorient them profoundly in medical school by exposing them to all kinds of strange and and perhaps alarming uh, sights and sounds and, and responsibilities. And then we build them back up to make decisions by themselves in the middle of the night. Um, and that kind of training does not lend itself well to team play or group. You know, I mean, you're trained to be able to act as an individual and therefore, you know, leading other colleagues, what I've called shoulder to shoulder medicine, as you did at, at Permanente and, and, you know, my friend Bob Margolis did in, in his uh, company, um, you know, I think is one of the hardest things to do. And, and, you know, you put it in an academic medical center context with, all the town and gown issues and and the the pressures of of uh, academic uh, institutions, and then you get even more complexity. So, I would say that you know running uh, and leading other doctors is is a very tough job. And obviously, you know, health system leaders, because now a majority of physicians are now employed by larger entities, particularly health systems, they're in that business and. Uh, you know, that makes their jobs ever more complicated going forward. Um, I, I do think that the, the hospital leaders and, uh, you know, there's a new generation and we're seeing a, a massive amount of turnover. Um, you know, I'm just a lot of my colleagues who I've worked with for 20 odd years uh, have retired, you know, flagship organizations all the way from you know, Common Spirit to UCSF to Yale to uh, you name it, Baylor, Scott and White, people I've worked with for many, many years. And um, I don't think it was just COVID. I think there is a, a natural turning over of of cohorts, partly to do with the explosion in, in, and sophistication of health services and health administration programs in the 60s and 70s. And that generation of leaders are, are retiring out. Um, and so I'm seeing a new generation of leaders uh, coming through, many of them clinicians uh, by training. Um, and, and I think that's a good thing. And, and, uh, but, but this is a challenging time to be, uh, you know, entrusted with a, a two to $5 billion health system, because uh, as we all know, there are some significant financial headwinds to do with the labor market and so forth. I, I think we'll, we'll get through it, but, but it's a tough time to be a leader of a large health system. And um, long-winded way of saying, uh, any way you cut it, you're gonna have to be able to manage uh, either in partnership with or directly uh, large groups of doctors and and find ways to, to 
motivate them and and corral them to uh, uh, you know to an organizational purpose that that's beyond their own practice area. Ian, you guys talked a lot about leadership today. Um, how do you think patients that are frustrated with the current state of American healthcare can rise up and be leaders in their communities to fight for change when they don't work in healthcare politics? Yeah, that is a hugely important question, Jeremy. And we haven't focused enough on the voice of the patient. I mean, I think uh, knowing and having worked with a, a number of the patient advocate folk uh, over the years that there are more sophisticated voices being heard in healthcare from the patient side in various ways. Um, I think, you know, real leaders in health systems, if they're smart, are finding new ways to listen to both their staff and their patients uh, and, and finding, uh, you know, using technologies like social media to really get a better pulse on on the patient's perspective, but but I do sense uh, certainly if you follow uh, kind of some of the threads on Twitter and other social media, there is a growing frustration amongst the American public that the health system is not serving them, particularly with regard to issues such as as out-of-pocket costs and financial gotchas. Not notwithstanding the surprise billing and other uh, legislative changes that have been enacted to kind of prevent that, there is this cynicism amongst the American public that uh, it's all a bit of a financial racket uh, and and frustration around that. And also frustration around this issue of throughput that I mentioned uh, earlier, that, you know, why does it have to be a two-month wait for a neurology appointment? So, I, I mean, all the more reason why health system leaders need to be much more attentive to the the needs and expectations of their patient population. And I think uh, the leaders I talk to, many of the successful ones, I think are ones who are putting in place and have put in place uh, systems and tools to, to really get the voice of the patient into not only the boardroom, but into the operations of their enterprise. I know you consult to quite a number of hospitals and hospital systems. Probably 50% of the communications I hear from folks these days is how the hospital industry is struggling. I know there's some data that says maybe it's not struggling as much as people say, but certainly if you're looking at hospitals serving uh, socioeconomically challenged individuals, rural hospitals, hospitals with a lot of competition, you look at the at least the reported income and bottom lines. Uh, there's quite a number of them that are either not earning any money on the operation side, not the investment side, but the operation side. And certainly, there's a huge number of them who are saying that if they don't have the added boosts, things like Medicare paying extra for an outpatient visit, so-called site neutrality issue, uh, if that if that visits related to a hospital, not even on a campus, but just related to it. Uh, or the opportunity to add on to patient bills, these fees that you get charged simply because you're using a hospital site for the care that you otherwise could get far less expensively elsewhere. How are hospitals going to get out of this mess? Um, do you think we have too many hospital beds, too few hospital beds? Will the hospital at home take off? I have about 20 different questions for you. What's your view? You're an expert in this area. 
Well, you know, I think you characterized where where they're at. You know, I was a meeting a month ago with with 150 hospital CEOs, many of the larger systems. The common thread is, of course, that you know, and I, that it varies market to market, obviously. But you know, if you compare pre-pandemic um, revenues are kind of flat now uh, relative to pre-pandemic levels, but expenses are up 10 to 20 percent. Uh, particularly on labor. Um, and that labor, uh, you know, there's some amelioration on the labor, you know, the the cost of travelers, uh, for example, which is kind of a tracer condition of the labor shortage, traveler nurses, you know, in many markets has dropped from an astronomical level from, you know, $300 an hour down to about a hundred. Um, and, you know, if you talk to CEOs, many of them will say the entire kind of loss on the operating line was was really that additional cost for labor that they endured over the last couple of years, largely because of of the, you know, the contagiousness of Omicron and and that caused a, a lot of particularly older nurses and, and practitioners to just leave the field uh, permanently. Um, I, I do think it's going to slowly recover and there's signs of that. And I was with the Ken Kaufman, who tracks this stuff very closely, and you know that the the month by month and quarter by quarter reports on finances seem to be coming back a little bit. What what I would say, Robbie, and you nailed it, is that uh, it depends where you are. You know, I ran into a number without naming names uh, health systems who are, you know, clipping along along at a decent positive operating margin of four to five percent, which is kind of, you know, the pre-pandemic industry kind of standard, if you like, of, of normal fair-sized hospitals. Um, and to answer your question about, I, I mean, certainly every academic medical center I talk to is full. Um, you know, Stanford, UCLA, uh, you know, UCSF, everyone seems to be full to the gunnels. Uh, and many community hospitals are too. Um, so I don't think we're short of supply um, but certainly the payer mix issue is the issue that because of this great bolus in Medicaid, Medicaid went up through the pandemic by 26% in terms of enrollment. Now, it's about uh, what's going to be very interesting over the next two months is with the, the expiration of the public health emergency, we're going to see um, by many estimates, maybe as many as 15 million people drop off the Medicaid rolls. Most of them will still be eligible for Medicaid, but because of this uh, redetermination opportunity, I think in in some of the red states where Medicaid wasn't expanded, you're going to see pretty significant bumps in the uninsured with the consequences for finances for hospitals. So on the one hand, I think the labor markets are starting to ease. The numbers this morning for the jobs report were in the low 200s. That, that will probably cause, uh, you know, labor costs to ameliorate some going forwards. But on the other hand, I think we're going to see increased payer pressure from the commercial side on the one hand and, uh, you know, potential bump up again in the uninsured on the other. So um, it's a tough time. And again, it, it doubles down, Robbie, on the need for operational excellence. I think the people who are going to make it through here are folk who have a very good handle on 
you know, just their their sheer operational uh, uh, capacities. And you, you know, I I talk to a lot of leaders who are who are doing important. You know, it, it's not fancy. It's not. Uh, glitzy it's not high tech often it's it's sort of blocking and tackling uh, uh you know and they're rolling up their sleeves and they're trying to uh you know become more efficient and and do the right things to to make those operating numbers turn around i talked with a venture capitalist this morning and she was saying that the cost of getting funds for capital investment these days isn't the five or 6% that the Fed talks about. It's 10 to 15%. And that is a huge hurdle. Hospitals still run basically as a five-day operation. Obviously, if you have a heart attack, it has to take care of you on the weekends. But there's a lot of unused capital on two out of seven days in the week. Are we going to be able to change this? Or will the labor situation make it impossible to be able to maximally increase efficiency in hospital performance. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the you know this this sort of fixed and variable notion uh, of cost with hospitals is is a profound challenge. And and you know, I I started my career even though I wasn't trained as a management engineer. Um, you know, in in Canada, uh, I I worked as a management engineer in a hospital for uh, several years. And you know we we always sort of did the calculation that to staff on a twenty four seven basis was whatever five or six FTEs full time equivalents. Um, and to your point, you know even though we have this very expensive asset base, we do uh, tend to operate you know at Monday to Friday full capacity, and everything slows down uh, a bit on the weekend. Well, um, yeah, I do think that throughput is becoming a very important issue for the acute care sector, given that they're not short of things to do in the main, um, but that we've got this situation where because of uh, a whole bunch of different reasons, um, you know, it's a, it's a six week or eight week or 12 week wait for a neurology appointment. You know, I've got a dermatology appointment uh, at the Palo Alto Clinic, it's for the second term of the Chelsea Clinton administration. You know, I mean, it's, <laughs> it, it, it's just insane, um, some of the waiting times. So I think what I'm hearing a lot from health systems, particularly the ones with busy emergency rooms and and not, not a shortage of demand, is increased attention to throughput. And it's actually where some of the innovations that you pointed to with chat GPT in terms of you know, just screening tools and technologies, AI-based systems to perhaps identify which of those neurology patients should perhaps be seen earlier. Uh, I know David Entwistle at Stanford was talking about some innovations they've been experimenting with in that regard. Um, you know, I, I think we are going to see innovation to help us with these problems of throughput. And and again, it comes back to the kind of the core of, of this leadership conversation, which is what are the skill sets you need to be a, a leader, not only as a strategist, but as an operational, you know, as the boss, if you like, of a, a large operation um, going forward? What are those tools and technologies that you need to be in your armamentarium uh, on a go forward basis? And I think 
you know, the 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 adoption of of AI and other productivity and enhancing tools for knowledge work are, are going to be hugely important. Ian, I always love talking to you. I always learn a tremendous amount. <clears throat> I think the time has come for you to write the, your next book on the third curve and the leadership needed to navigate it. I can't wait to read it and learn from you. Thank you for being here today. Keep up the good work, you guys. It's a big contribution to the field. I know it's greatly appreciated by everybody. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare and have a great day.